I uh, recently connected with a friend I knew back in high school. I had not seen her uh, since I left San Diego to go to college in Chicago. And in fact, the last time I heard, she actually, she got in a really bad car accident while she was in college. Well, via social media, Facebook, we were able to reconnect. And I've discovered she's happily married, has a couple of kids. And the other day, I was talking to my mom about this, this woman who I, this friend I'd reconnected with. And she said, well, Aaron, did you hear about her son? I said, no, what do you mean? She's like, well, you're not going to believe this, but um, they have a couple of kids. But uh, when their son started to walk, they had a lot of concern because he was walking with a limp on his left side. You know, not the kind of thing you want to hear as a parent. You know, you want your kids to develop. Well, this, this little boy, when he started to walk, he was walking with a limp. And the parents thought, well, maybe there's, there's, he has some kind of injury or maybe he's struggling with some kind of learning disability or something with motor skills. So, so they ran a bunch of tests to see what the problem was, why he was walking with a limp on his left side. And you know what the test revealed? Do you know what his problem was? Nothing. The test revealed that the child was perfectly healthy. No issues with his motor skills. He wasn't injured in any way. So my mom's telling me this. I said, so, well, mom, tell me, so, so, so what's the issue? What's going on? She said, Aaron, you're not going to believe this. She said, but they discovered the reason why the son walked with a limp, even though he was perfectly healthy, was because his mom walked with a limp. You see, ever since her car accident in college, my friend, that mom, she walked with a limp on her left side. And from the moment that boy was born, he was noticing and looking and saw how his mom walked. So you know what he did when he began to walk? He began to walk with a limp on his left side too, even though he was perfectly healthy. True story. Let me ask you, speaking of walking, how would you describe your walk with the Lord? This is to say, if you had to give an honest assessment of your Christian life, how would you describe it? Would you describe it as a healthy walk? Or would you say it's more like a limp? And if you would say that your walk with the Lord would be best described as a limp, why do you think that is? Now, uh, in a crowd this size, I have no doubt that some of you here this morning, you, you may not be a Christian. Perhaps you're, you're just curious about what it means to be a Christian or you're exploring about biblical Christianity. And if that's true of you this morning, I just want to say welcome. We are so glad you're here. 
Because what we're talking about and what we are going to talk about this morning is a foundational truth to biblical Christianity. You know what that is? It's this. You see, friend, the reason why so many Christians limp along in their walk with the Lord is the same reason why that young boy walked with a limp. And that's because of this biblical truth, and that is you become what you behold. You become what you behold. Long before that boy even had the ability to walk, you know what he was doing? He was watching his mother. He was beholding her. That is, he was fixing his gaze upon her each and every day. And since his mom was his source of food, care, and comfort, we could even say that that little boy was treasuring his mom. You see, friend, here's a foundational truth to biblical Christianity, and that is, you become what you behold. That is, we become what we value, what we treasure, what we worship. And we see this principle played out all around us, do we not? And friend, this is especially true when it comes to our growth as Christians. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul, he, he perfectly summarizes this principle well and how it applies to the Christian life. Paul writes this. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. What are we doing as we're beholding the glory of the Lord? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So let me just circle back here for a moment. Friend, you know why so many Christians limp along in their Christian faith and in their Christian life. Please hear me. It's not because Jesus has a limp. No, not at all. Rather, it's because they have a dim or distorted view of Jesus. That is, they are not beholding the beauty and majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they have either a very shallow or dim view of Jesus, who he is, what he do, has done, and what he has accomplished. Because notice what Paul teaches in this passage. Paul states that we are transformed into the image of Christ, that is, we grow to be like him by beholding the glory of Christ. And when we not only understand, but treasure the glory and majesty of Jesus, the Spirit does a work in our hearts. The Spirit does a work in our lives. He transforms us to be more like Jesus. However, please hear me, friend. Please hear me. This transformation cannot happen, cannot happen if you have a shallow understanding or a dim view of Jesus. For your Christian faith, for your walk to be a strong stride, you need to see, understand, and behold the fullness and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's precisely why we need our text this morning, 2 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, 
2 Samuel chapter 7. Got a little excited there. Because you know why that is? Because in the text we're about to look at, 2 Samuel 7, this text helps us see more of the beauty, majesty, and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, the truth contained in this passage helps us see the fullness of Jesus. So our Christian walk would not be a limp, but a strong and steady run. Do you want that? I know I want that. And my guess is you do too. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's page 259 in that paperback Bible and the seat in front of you or behind you. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. For the last several months, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And you need to know that 2 Samuel chapter 7 is not only the most important chapter in 1 and 2 Samuel, but it's also one of the important, most important chapters in the entire Bible. In fact, we could say that it's one of the tallest mountain peaks in the biblical landscape that helps us see how the entire Bible fits together and then points to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we're taking several weeks to go through this text. And last week what we did, we just looked at the first eight verses, didn't we? And you recall how in the first eight verses of 2 Samuel 7, God is having a DTR with David, isn't he? God, in those opening verses, he's letting David know David's place in relationship to God. And do you remember what we learned? God was teaching David a lesson that is true of all people, and that is this, and that is, God doesn't need you, you need him. Amen? Remember this? And that checks, in that exchange between David and God, we learned several important lessons based on this truth that God doesn't need you, but you need him. We learned that we are to inquire of the Lord, not people. We're to act on God's word, not our zeal, and to rejoice that God is near, not distant. The opening verses of the most important chapter in 2 Samuel lets the reader know that God doesn't need you, you need him. This is true of us, and it was true of David as well. So now that that relationship is properly defined, the stage is set for what we now read next. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be focusing in really on verses 14 to 19, but to get the context, I'm going to read back in verse 1 of chapter 7. We read this. So David is king of Israel. The ark of the Lord is brought into the city of David. David is experiencing peace. And listen to what happens now, verse 1 of chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, this is David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, 
for the Lord is with you. David is enjoying the comfort of a beautiful house of cedar, and he's like, here the ark of the Lord, the very presence of God. He's in a tent. David is thinking, I should build a house for the Lord, a temple. And Nathan says, you go with your bad self and do that, right? <laughs> kind of. But notice what happens next in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying to David, Look, David, I appreciate the sentiment. It's a noble aspiration. I really appreciate it. But look, David, I don't need you. In fact, no, you need me. Indeed, as God's going to say, he's going to go on to say, Rather, David, you don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. In fact, David, I'm going to make your name great. For look at what he says next there in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of all the earth. Now, if we are reading our Bibles carefully, and we hear God make this promise to David that he's going to make his name great, we ought to be thinking to ourselves, you know what? I've heard that before. Where have we heard God promise someone that he's going to make his name great among all the nations? Father Abraham, right? Yeah, the many sons, right. In Genesis 17, God promised Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham, and you remember what God promised to do. God promised to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham's seed, through his family. And then later on in the book of Genesis, verse 49, 10, we learn how God's going to fulfill that promise. He says it's going to be through a king from the line of the tribe of Judah. So David's like, look, I'm going to make your name great. This is echoing back to God's covenant with Abraham. Now look at what God goes on to say there in the following verse. Verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David's like, God, I want to build you a house. And, David, and God says, 
I appreciate the sentiment, but no, David, I'm going to build you a house. Now, as several commentators have pointed out, this chapter, the chapter we're working through, it contains the longest speech of God since Mount Sinai, which suggests the mark of a major transition in God's redemptive plan. Now, I also want you to just think about what's happening here in the context of First and Second Samuel. Okay? This is the first time that the Lord has spoken at any length since 1 Samuel chapter 3. And do you remember what God said in 1 Samuel chapter 3? At night, God gave a vision to the prophet, another prophet, Samuel. And you know what? It's a vision that had to do with a house. But it wasn't a house that was going to be built. It was a house that was going to be destroyed, the house of Eli. So as we're thinking about and trying to understand what's happening here, the last time God speaks at any length, he talks about destroying the house of Eli for his sin. Now we see God speaking at length to tell David, I'm going to build you a house forever. Now, when God says he's going to build David a house, it's not a brick and mortar. Rather, he's referring to a dynasty. And we know that's the case because of what he says next. Look there at verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? For notice how often this word is used. And I will be a father, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. Okay, so I think you can, can see right now with the language that God is using, he's making some really big and significant promises to David. And I want you to notice how God's promises are so certain that he says there in verse 14 and 15 that nothing can stop his promises from coming to pass, even sin. Right? As the rest of the Old Testament makes clear, all of David's son, even David himself, are failures. They sin in extraordinary ways. Yet God says he's not going to allow that to prevent him from fulfilling his promises. But that's not all. You know what else won't keep God from fulfilling his promise? Time. Because look at what he says next there in verse 16. He says, In your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure, how long? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, and Nathan spoke to David. So God is promising David that from him, he's going to have a dynasty and it's going to have an eternal throne. Now this is, this is problematic. Because when God made his covenant with Israel, God required that the king perfectly obey and follow God's statutes. Deuteronomy 17 makes this clear. And although David did a good job at this, he still failed. 
Yet this passage is telling us that David's promised son would be a king who perfectly keeps God's law. That's one of the reasons why he will be able to have an eternal throne. Now notice how David responds to all this. Even though David is giving these great promises, he knows he's not the promised one. He also knows that this is not only for Israel, but for all people, because look at what he says. I mean, just remote, just put yourself in David's shoes, okay? God is giving you peace and prosperity. You want to do something for him, and he comes back to you and says, David, I don't need you. You need me, and David, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your house, a dynasty, a kingdom, a throne that will last forever. It's extraordinary. And so notice how David responds. Verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He's going before the ark and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You know, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And then this is really important when he says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, when my brother Dave and I were just little shavers, about seven, eight years old, uh, my dad made an extraordinary promise to us. You know what he promised to get us? He promised to get us a go-kart. Okay? And oh, we were so excited. Not one of those battery-operated jobs. No, one of those real gas-powered go-karts. We were, we were thrilled. So, so you know what my brother Dave and I did every day after he made that promise to us? We reminded our dad of the promise that he made to us to get us a go-kart. My brother Dave and I are still reminding him of that promise today. <laughs> but this is to say, we never got the go-kart. Now, are we bitter towards him? Maybe. No. No. We're not bitter towards him. In fact, we, we like to bring it up every once in a while to have a good laugh. But it did crush our hearts. No, I'm joking. <laughs> In the text I just read, God makes an incredible promise to David, doesn't he? Yet what I want you to see is that God's promise to David is more significant than it might seem to you. You know why? Because in God's promise to David, the Lord is doing something rather monumental. And you know what that is? In his promise to David, the text we just read, the Lord is including all his previous promises concerning how God is going to save sinful humans. If I think of it like this, if you go out here from the church, you get on Roseanne Road, and you go out to, to 42, and you turn left, you'll notice that the road goes up the hill, Right? But it just doesn't go up the hill. Something else happens here when you go up the road. And that is, the road merges from two lanes into one. Well, in this chapter that we just read, please hear me, 
all the lanes of God's previous promises concerning salvation merge into one. And that one lane centers on David's son. In fact, the main idea we learn from our chapter is this really, really important truth. And friend, you'll have a hard time understanding or making sense of the entire Bible if we don't get this, and that is this, and that is all of God's saving promises come through David's son. All of God's saving promises, they funnel, they merge, and they center in, and they come through David's son. An expositional sermon makes the main point of the text, the main point of the sermon, and the main point of this text is this. All of God's saving promises come through David's son. You see, friend, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but all of us in this room, we are sinners by nature and by choice. Sin is not just something we do. It is, but it's more than that. It's our nature. As we talked about before, the best way to think about it is like this. We are like rag dolls that have been soaked in the gasoline of sin and our God is a consuming fire. So do you see the problem? This is really, really, really bad news for us. So the question is, what hope do we have to escape the judgment for our sin? Well, friend, please hear me. The good news is that God has made a way for sin-soaked people like you and me to escape God's judgment, be forgiven of our sin, and to be made right with God. Right after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we find God making a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that from the seed of the woman, there would come one, God would provide one who would crush the head of the serpent. This is to say God would send one who would deliver us, sinful humanity, from our sin. So as we work our way through the biblical story, we see a narrowing focus. At first we know it's going to come from Eve. Then in Genesis 12, we learn that this promised one will come from the seed of Abraham. At the end of Genesis, as I talked about, we learn that a king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. We learn that a king will come from the line of Abraham and the tribe of Judah who will bring God's saving promises to pass. And who do we find when we come across David in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel? In David, we see a king from the tribe of Judah. Yet as 2 Samuel 7 makes clear, it is not David, but David's son, that is someone from David's line who will bring God's saving promises to pass. Let me put it this way. Friend, for you to be forgiven of your sins, for you to be saved, you need exactly what we see in this text. David's true son. And you know why that is? It's because your sin and my sin is far worse than we think it is. Friend, listen to me. Forgiveness of sin is not simple. 
It's not an easy equation. Indeed, much is needed for us to be made right with God. And in this text, we learn precisely what is needed. And that is one from the tribe of David who's going to fulfill all of God's saving promises. And in this text, we learn three important truths about David's son, this promised deliverer. And I'm going to suggest to you this, that these three important truths are not only necessary for you to be saved, but for you to grow in your faith. Because remember, you become what you behold. So here's the first truth we learn as we see, okay? All of God's saving promises come through David's son, which means for you to be saved, you need what's in this text. And what we see which is in this text is an obedient representative. Look at again at verses 14 and 15. Let me read this. God says of this future Davidic son, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. You need, friend, for you to be saved, you need an obedient representative. So, um, speaking of sons, I have three. Uh, They're here this morning, as they should be. Um, And my three sons, they love football. In fact, throughout the day, you will hear them impersonating the sound of a quarterback calling for the center to hike him the ball. Especially my eight-year-old, he can perfectly impersonate Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady. So throughout the day, I'll be going about my business and I'll hear from the other room, Bluey! Brad Nardine! How did I? Okay. Yet as every football fan knows, hiking the ball is just one part of the play, right? For the play to be successful, each player must do his part. After Adam and Eve sinned, God designed a play. He drew up a play to save sinful humanity. And this play, we could say, is revealed in the covenants of Scripture. However, what the Bible makes clear is that every covenant required an obedient covenant partner. This is to say for God's plan of salvation to come to pass, the human covenant partner needed to be an obedient player who did what was required of him. Yet as we work our way through the Bible, we we see very clearly that every human covenant partner fails. We see this with Noah Abraham, Israel, and David. God makes a covenant with them, yet every time you could say God handed off the ball to them, they fumbled. You could say every covenant partner was like Tony Romo in the big game. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Notice carefully what God says in the verse I just read. Speaking of this future deliverer, God says he will be a father to him and he will be to God a son. Now, when we hear son in our context, we think of bloodlines. Like I said, you have three sons, 
In many ways, they look like me. They bear my image. But what we have to understand is that in Scripture and in the ancient world, sonship also carried with it the notion of representation. The son represented the father in his character and actions. And notice, this is who will come from David's line. A son who represents God the Father. And this is what we need for God's saving purposes to come to pass. We need an obedient representative. Previously, Adam and Israel were called God's sons who were to represent God to the world, yet they failed. But now God makes a promise that there will be a son who represents him, and it will be David's son. But that's not all we need. We also need an eternal king. Look again at verses 14 and 16, or 15 and 16, rather 16 and 17. He says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. This is an eternal kingdom which requires an eternal king. As Bob Dylan once sang, you got to serve somebody. And you know what? He is correct. To put it another way, you and I, friend, we were meant to be ruled. Yet left to ourselves, we would self-destruct. And if we are going to be saved, we need a king. And not just any king, but an eternal king. One whose rule over our lives will have no end. And that is what is promised in David's son. David's son will have a throne forever. Now let me ask you, how would that be possible? How could David have a throne that would last forever? One way is that every descendant would be successful in producing a male heir, a male heir who's obedient and faithful to God. That's one way. But can you think of another? While you're thinking about it, consider the third truth we learn about this Davidic son. Namely, I'm going to massage it under the idea that He's an infallible Savior because notice what David says there at the end of verse 19. After reflecting on all that God has done, David makes this really important statement. He says, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And he says, And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord. David's response reveals that God's saving promises, this is good news, are for everyone. For as I said, he says, this instruction is for mankind. This is to say, whoever this Davidic son might be, he is an infallible Savior, one who can save any person. Yet as the Old Testament makes clear, the promises to David were not fulfilled by David or by any of, his, of the kings in the Old Testament. So here's the question. How will God keep his promises after the failure of the Davidic kings? 
And you know what? The prophets answer that question. You know what they say? They say this. To quote one, the prophet Isaiah, they say that a branch of David would spring up and the stump of Jesse would grow back into a royal tree. And that's precisely what God accomplished in Jesus Christ. Friend, for how is Jesus described in the New Testament? Consider what the angel Gabriel says in Luke. Speaking to Mary, listen to what he says. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. Where have we just heard that? And we called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of who? His father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the true Davidic son who fulfills all these promises. Or consider what we read in Romans, what Paul says in verses 1 through 4. He says, Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now listen, concerning his son, who was descended from who? David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know how Jesus, how David's son can have an eternal kingdom? Because Jesus rose from the dead, amen? It's eternal because Christ is eternal. Jesus is the Davidic son who brings all of God's saving purposes to pass. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Since all of God's previous covenant partners failed, you know what God did? He sent his one and only son to accomplish everything necessary for sinful people like you and me to be saved. What God did is this. God handed the ball off. God the Father handed the ball off to Jesus Christ so he could fulfill the Father's saving purposes. Because all the previous covenant partners failed. You see, on the cross, Jesus wasn't disciplined or punished because he had sinned. No, on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath we are owed for our sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be God's one true son. Friend, Jesus is the obedient representative, the eternal king, the infallible savior you and I need. Amen? So let me bring this full circle. You want to be more godly? Do you? Do you want your Christian walk to be defined as a strong stride rather than a limp? Friend, you become what you behold. Is this the Christ you are beholding? Or have you been beholding a dim, shallow understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ? What are you valuing and treasuring? Friend, you're never going to behold the fullness of Christ without knowing the scriptures in which he is revealed. If you want to grow in your faith, work hard 
at studying how this glorious son of David, Jesus Christ, is described and revealed in the Holy Scriptures. I know it always amazes me how guys can know the names and statistics of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of college football players and professional football players that go back to the 60s, 70s, and 50s. Passing percentage, touchdowns, total yards, the different plays, even the coaches they were with can bring it to mind like that. Yet they have convinced themselves that it's too hard for them to know the major players in the Bible. Friend, if you, if you adopt that mentality, that's going to be your Christian walk. You know why? Because you're going to have a dim view of Jesus. 2 Samuel 7 has been given for us to see just how glorious Jesus Christ, the Son of David, truly is. And my encouragement to us is to behold him. Bible professor Howard Henricks once said this. He said, the Bible does not yield its treasure to the lazy so may we be found by the Spirit's help to work hard at giving ourselves to, to the very Word of God so we could know our Savior more and not only know Him and His glory, but then walk in His commands. Amen? Let's pray.